Now, let's turn, please, in our studies to Matthew chapter 8, as we have been steadily working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And as most of you are aware that three weeks ago, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and then two weeks ago, it was the section in chapters 5, 6, 7 that dealt with the Lord's Prayer. And as we leave that section behind, we move into chapter 8, and it's entitled, The Man with Leprosy. And as we read through to verse 13, there are two absolutely remarkable and astonishing passages of Scripture right here. And it begins at chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountainside, a large, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is in terrible suffering. And Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Amen. And we trust and pray that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Before we come to the passage this morning, allow me please to appeal to you for some help. We are in a situation, and you've heard me mention this uh, several times over the past couple of months, that Sunday mornings are becoming busier and busier. Claire headed up a new member's class this week, and we had a hundred people sign up for that new member's class. That is unprecedented for us. Last January, we had 53 and thought we will never get more than 53, and this past weekend has been absolutely amazing. And you heard it in March prayer as God is clearly at work in the lives of folks in our community and in our congregation. And so, let me ask you, please, to assist in one small and simple way, that at the close of the service, after our final hymn, just before you get up and leave, take a look around you. And if there's folks you don't immediately recognize, please say hi, welcome them, tell them it's good to see them, ask if you can help in any way, because if you are new here this morning, you may not necessarily know how to get back to the parking lot, because coming to First Pres is all corridors and passageways, and so you may need some help. So, please, if you worship with us regularly, reach out and help in any way you can. Secondly, 
today. There will be a number of us with wee ones in the nursery and children's ministry area. And if you don't know how to get back there, please ask. Someone sitting close to you will be glad to walk with you back there. Now, even if they're not, now that I've said that, they will. So, please uh, walk them along to children's ministry area. It's only two minutes that way, and they'll be glad to help. And incidentally, for those of you who are relatively new, you will know that when you register your children in the morning, you're given a receipt. And if you can't produce your receipt, you can't pick up your child. Uh, the best we can do is offer one of similar or lesser value. So, please uh, just remember your receipt, and you've got 28 days to use that. So, uh, so that's, that, that's right there. Now, apart from all of my silliness, please forgive me, but do help us with all of this if you would. Now, over these last eight or nine weeks together, we have been suggesting that studying Matthew's gospel is a little like building a jigsaw puzzle. And when we started in early December, I suggested that we look at the characters of Mary and Joseph and Gabriel and the shepherds and the wise men, and we build one corner of the jigsaw puzzle. And that jigsaw puzzle has begun to build in various directions all at the same time. And over recent weeks, we've looked at the temptation of Jesus in the desert. We have looked at other themes and looking at similar shapes and colors within these themes. And as we have slotted the jigsaw puzzle pieces together, a picture has begun to emerge. And for some of you, you are now saying to me, Richard, I'm loving Matthew's gospel. I've learned a great deal. I'm beginning to see these various pieces slot together and the emerging picture. But Richard, what would be helpful to me is to help me with the much larger framework of the jigsaw puzzle. I've got one corner, I think, and I'm familiar with it, but now give me a sense of the wider framework. Well, allow me to do that in the next two minutes before we come to the passage, because when you have a wider appreciation of the framework, from which Matthew's gospel will emerge, you'll have a fuller understanding of Matthew and his gospel. And a fuller, a fuller understanding and appreciation does what? It provides us with more information. And information leads to what? It leads to appreciation, and appreciation leads to transformation. And that's our ultimate goal in a Sunday morning. That's why, for those watching at home or on our Fox Carolina broadcast, that's why we spend time in the pages of Scripture, because we're convinced that as we engage with Scripture, as we open up our hearts and minds and souls to all that God says to us through the pages of His Word, Information, appreciation, understanding do in fact lead to transformation, and that's always where we're going on Sunday morning. So let me begin, and some of this will be redundant to you, because at the beginning of the year, remember we handed out, we handed out some bookmarks, and if you're watching from home and really would like a bookmark, it has all of our dates and subject matter on one side. It has principles of interpretation and several questions to be asking yourself during these uh, months of a new year. If you're watching from home and don't have it, please send us an email. You'll see it at the bottom of your screen, and we'll be glad to put one in the mail. If you're here this morning and don't have it, you can pick it up at the literature racks on the way out. So, please feel free to 
use that. And those principles of interpretation are threefold. And again, some of you are fed up with me saying this, but please be patient with me. Because the first time we come to a new passage, we're constantly asking, what is the historical context? In other words, who is writing? When are they writing? Who are they writing to? Why is that significant? Secondly, we look at the theological content. What does the passage say about God? Now, we live in a day and age in a Christian context. Whenever we open up the Scripture, the temptation is to say, how does this passage relate to me? Where am I in this passage? And that's a good question to ask, but it's never the first question. And how many times have you heard me say that on Sunday morning? The first question is, what is the theological content? In other words, what does the passage say about God? Then we ask, how does it apply to me? And so, applying to me is a secondary question, but we ask, what is the theological content? And thirdly, what is the literary structure? And that's a very fancy seminary way of saying, why does a biblical writer use particular words in a particular manner, and why is that significant? And we're going to see a little of that in a moment or two. So, when it comes to Matthew's gospel, let's focus on building that framework to give us a greater understanding. We know this, the first piece of the framework with one square edge goes in place, and we know that Matthew's gospel was written around A.D. 80. Now, some New Testament scholars put it a little later, some put it a little earlier, but it's reasonable to say that the evidence suggests around the year A.D. 80. Secondly, again, evidence suggests that he's probably writing to Christians in Antioch in Syria, which is some 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And that tells us this, that the gospel not only was impacting individuals' lives, but it was impacting entire communities, and it had stretched as far north as Antioch. Thirdly, and another piece of the jigsaw puzzle goes in place, he's writing to folks who come from a mixture of Jewish and Gentile background. And how do we know that? How can we say that with certainty? For this reason, there are distinctive elements in Matthew's gospel that point towards a mainly Jewish readership, and we see that in this sense. Matthew's focus is on Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he uses more quotations and allusions to the Old Testament than any other New Testament author. And so, Matthew again and again and again quotes the Old Testament. One of his favorite words is fulfilled. This was fulfilling. This was written to fulfill, and it then has an Old Testament reference. And so, as Matthew writes, he's saying to folks with a Jewish background, all that you are reading, all that you are engaging with, all that you see before you in this page is fulfilling and bringing to pass God's purpose and will, and it's highlighting His faithfulness from Genesis all the way through. And we see that again and again in Matthew. And so, another piece of the framework falls into place. We also know that in the early church, Matthew's gospel was used more extensively than any other gospels, and that tells us that it was widely distributed, not simply widely used. It was trusted. And in addition to that, Matthew has structured his entire gospel most effectively. Now, what do I mean by that? Simply this. 
He has five main sections, and each section excuse me, consists of events from the life of Jesus, samples of his preaching and teaching, and a concluding refrain when Jesus had finished saying these things. And in fact, as you look at Matthew chapter 8, the first verse we read, if you go back a couple of verses, we read at the end of chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and that brings to an end chapter 7, and it brings to an end the first major section in Matthew's gospel, we then read the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. And so, one, the first major uh, section of Matthew's gospel has come to an end. And then we see it again in chapters 11, 13, 19, and 26. And so, Matthew intentionally uses the phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, you know He's coming into a new section. And sure enough, that's exactly what He's doing here as we come from chapter 7 into chapter 8. And as you come into chapter 8, a shift takes place in Matthew's focus. The last few chapters, as you know, were the Sermon on the Mount. And those who were there, and those of us who appreciate and have read the Sermon on the Mount multiple times, each time we read it, it says something fresh and new to us. And we're caught often in absolute wonder and awe at the grace and love of God found in these chapters. We want to sit quietly. We want to shake our head in absolute adoration and awe and say, Father, thank you that you are our Father. And all of that is wrapped up in these preceding chapters. And then Matthew shifts from the teaching of Jesus way over here to the miracles of Jesus. Because Matthew is saying not only is Jesus a first-rate communicator, not only does He highlight for us God as our Father, not only is He able to show compassion and empathy in His teaching, not only does He teach with authority and authenticity and credibility, but He's about to back up His teaching. Because in chapters 8 and 9 on eight occasions we read of miracles, and sometimes miracles with two and three and four and five and six people. And so, as you come to Matthew's gospel, you're kind of shaking your head and thinking, wait a minute, not only is Jesus this incredible teacher, but here He is, very God of very God. And we're reminded, of course, of way back here, down in the corner, there was a little piece of the jigsaw puzzle that said in Matthew chapter 1, He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now the picture is spreading. Now the emerging picture is that of a Messiah, of God Himself coming to earth to interact with us, not simply to teach us about God, but to demonstrate His character and His nature. And all of that is wrapped up in these two incredible incidents. And so, when we come to the opening words, what do we discover? When He came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed Him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before Him and said, Lord, if You are willing, You can make me clean. 
Now, let me unpack that because there's a lot in there. And in essence, what it means is this. Matthew is transitioning from chapter 7, as we've said, into chapter 8. When he came down from the mountains, a large crowd was with him. Now, imagine in your mind a large crowd is a little like going to a college football game in the middle of October or early November when thousands of people are present. You are bumping into each other. You're jostling one another. You're rubbing up and down against one another. You've got children with you, and you're fearful you might lose them in the crowd. But the difference between today and the first century was this that in the first century, thousands were lying there, reaching out because they suffered with paralysis or epilepsy, or in one case, leprosy, and they are crying out in need. And we know that the man with leprosy says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing. Now, hold that thought in your mind and remember, one of the principles that we talked about earlier of interpretation was the literary structure. And we said, what did we say it meant? It meant particular words in particular places. And it's not simply that the man was saying, Lord, if you are willing, there's a qualification to those words. And the qualification is what? He approached Jesus and was kneeling. He was kneeling down. That word means worshiping, much more stronger than he simply approached him. He was kneeling. He was saying, Lord, I know you have the power. If you are willing, heal me. Why on earth would he say, if you are willing? Because for the last number of years, at least in my mind, he struggled with leprosy. And what does that mean? That means this that first there was a blemish on his forehead, and then on his cheek, and then on the back of his hand, and it spread to his wrist, and on his feet. And slowly but surely, these areas began to itch and become irritated, and then they would become numb and lose any sense of feeling, and he would be dropping knives and forks and plates, unable to work out what was going on, and then his flesh would turn white and disintegrate and he would lose his fingers and his toes and his hands and his feet. He was considered unclean. He had to wear a face mask because the disease had played havoc with his looks. It affected his larynx. He had a hoarse whisper of a voice. And when he was out in public, he was obliged to call out, unclean, unclean and people would run from him 100 to 125 feet away. He was, in their minds, contagious. No one wanted him. Can you imagine the mental and emotional heartbreak he went through? And he comes and says, Lord, if you are willing, no one else would give me the time of day. No one would speak to me. I can't remember the last time someone patted me on the shoulder and said, I'm praying for you. I don't remember the last time someone gave me a hug or said, I'm thinking of you. They simply stayed away. I think of the isolation and the loneliness, and now he comes to Jesus and kneels down, Lord, if you are willing. And of course, Christ responds. 
And how does he respond? He does what no one else will do. He reaches out and touches the man. Now, in the second miracle with the centurion, he doesn't touch anyone, but he knows this man needs a physical touch. It is a tactile experience. He wants him to know that healing has come, and he's spectacularly healed, spectacularly so. And as the passage moves on, what do we discover? The focus shifts to Capernaum, and we see not just this wonderful, spectacular teacher, but we see this miracle worker, very God of very God. Please understand the miracle. It was a supernatural event where life was breathed back into that which was diseased, and healing and wholeness and fullness came. That's what's happening. And now it moves to Capernaum, Capernaum in Upper Galilee, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, on the main trade route north to Syria. It had a population in the first century of some 8,000 people, large enough to have a tax center and a Roman garrison where, no doubt, the centurion was based. I have to confess I'm somewhat biased towards this centurion. He commanded a hundred soldiers. Luke's gospel tells us that out of his own money, he paid for the building of the synagogue in the town of Capernaum. It was a fishing center. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were all fishermen right there. Jesus spent most of his adult life there in Capernaum. He knew the people in the area, and he knew them well. And notice how the passage unfolds. The centurion comes to him and says, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed. That's pretty serious stuff and in terrible suffering. And Jesus says, I will go and heal him. And the centurion is aghast. He's so surprised. He's the one who's astonished. He said, Lord, hold on. I, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he says, I'm a commander of soldiers. I say, go, and one goes. I say, come, and one goes. Lord, if you say it, that will be enough. Can you think of another occasion in all of Scripture where God speaks, and the wonder and beauty of a miraculous event takes place. Well, let me rewind way back to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created, and He said, let there be light, and there was light. All He did was speak, and God, in all of His wonder and glory and transcendent majesty, brought the world into being. That's what's going on over here, much smaller scale, but in the life of this individual, paralyzed, seriously suffering. We saw it moments ago, and we see it again. And Matthew is saying, as he slots another piece of the jigsaw puzzle into place, he's saying, pay attention. Here is God Himself. Emmanuel, God with us, is at work. And you may well be saying, okay, Richard, I've got it. I think I understand the picture, but help me understand what I can take out of this passage to live with for the week ahead. 
Give me something I can take home. Well, let me suggest this. At the beginning of our time together, I suggested that a framework in place grants to us a greater appreciation of Matthew's gospel. And these miracle accounts give us a greater, deeper, richer, fuller appreciation of the character and nature of Christ Himself. Very God of very God in our midst. And this morning, if you are struggling with a family situation, if you are struggling with a difficulty at work, if you're concerned about your future, seriously worried about test results, or what may be coming this week, please understand this, that both the leper and the centurion came and placed their burdens at the feet of Christ and trusted Him to take care of them. And you can do the same. You can do the same. And trusting Him means what? It's not standing back with your arms folded saying, He can take them. It's the opposite. It's saying, Lord, I am trusting You with my life. And not only am I trusting You with the circumstance, I'm trusting You with my heart, my soul, my mind, my future. Begin in me. Change me. Take me to that place of being on my knees and draw me into that richer relationship with You and enable me, please, despite my fears, despite my concerns, despite my reservations, to utterly and absolutely lay down my concerns before You. And Father, I hand them over and I leave them there. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank You for its call upon our lives to lay down before You our burdens and our concerns, the things that wake us up at night, the things we find ourselves focusing and concentrating on during the day. Father, grant to us Your enabling strength and grace to put them down at Your feet and to leave them there. Father, we do thank You for the immensity of Your love. May we bow before it this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.